The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, our show today is about peace, and it's also about international conflicts. And I have this wonderful book right in front of me called Elusive Peace, how modern diplomatic strategies could better resolve world conflicts. And I got a kick out of it because, you know, Kenneth Cloak, who's a friend of ours and was on our show, he wrote a wonderful testimonial for this book that I thought I'd read to you. It is increasingly clear that traditional military and diplomatic methods for resolving global conflicts cannot work. In Elusive Peace, Douglas Knoll not only shows us why, with explanations ranging from neuropsychology to philosophy and political analysis, he points us to morally meaningful solutions. This is a compelling, exciting, eye-opening read that will make you think and think again. And this is Ken Cloak, who is the president of the Mediators Beyond Borders and author of Conflict Revolution, Mediating Evil, War, Injustice and Terrorism. And we've just recently interviewed Ken. So this is such a small world. And I want to tell my audience about this wonderful man that I just recently met. Douglas Knoll Esquire is a full-time peacemaker and mediator specializing in difficult, complex, and intractable conflicts. He's an adjunct professor of law, and he has a master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. Doug was a business and commercial trial lawyer for 22 years before he turned to peacemaking, and he is a fellow of the International Academy of Mediators, a fellow of the American College of Civil Trial Mediators. He's on the American Arbitration Association Panel of Mediators and Arbitrators and was one of the first mediators certified under international standards established by the International Mediation Institute. He's also an author. He is the author of the books Elusive Peace, How Modern Diplomatic Strategies Could Better Resolve World Conflicts, which I have right here in my hands, and I love it. He is co-author of Sex, Politics, and Religion at the Office, also the New Competitive Advantage, and Peacemaking Practicing at the Intersection of Law and Human Conflict and also numerous other articles on peacemaking, restorative justice, conflict resolution, and mediation. Doug Knoll is also an experienced, skilled facilitator and trainer, and he 
also had been on one of the best lawyers in America since 2005 in bestlawyers.com. He is also a Northern California, what they call super lawyer by the Daily Journal. And also, I found out just once talking to him a few minutes ago, that he is the radio host of the Doug Knoll Show, which is wsradio.com. And he interviews people on peacemaking. So I just got to meet this wonderful person who we basically are soulmates from afar. So thank you so much, Doug, for joining us. Well, thank you, Mari. It's great to be with you. Why don't you tell us why you named your book Elusive Peace? The book title, actually, there's another book called Elusive Peace. Really? It's a more academic piece. But the reason that I chose Elusive Peace is because it struck me that that international conflict seems so difficult to find. Uh, And the international bodies that we think are charged with peacemaking have really done an, an, an abysmal job of finding peace. The United Nations, for example, has in, in from 1945 to the present has only had a 9% success rate in finding peace. The, the, the regional organizations like the African Union, the Gulf Cooperative Council, the, the Arab League, NATO, all of them put together have had a, less than a 15% success rate wow. at finding peace in the world. And as I started to study this, I began to realize that in most peace situations, uh, when a peace conference is convened, uh, in, in 90% of the cases, the, the aftermath is further war and genocide, not peace. Yes. And so that's why peace is elusive. How come it's so hard for the international diplomats, special envoys, eminent people, to bring people together who are as just as conflicted as we might imagine in obviously difficult and in fairly intractable circumstances, and fail. When we know that in our commercial practice and in civil mediation, we have success rates of 85 to 98 percent. Right, right. What's going on? So what is going on? (laughs) That's why I wrote the book. What's going on, in my opinion, is that diplomats are diplomats, politicians are politicians, and neither one of those highly intelligent, well-educated groups of people are mediators. They don't have the skill, they don't have the knowledge, and they don't have the aptitude to be peacemakers. We're asking, we're basically asking an oncologist to go into the trauma center on Friday night and manage an urban trauma center and figure out what to do. Now, when they teach diplomats, and I don't know if you got into this, I I didn't really see it, I mean, are they starting now to teach diplomat? I mean, how, do you go to school to become a diplomat? I mean, you go into political science, right? Or what do you take to become well, a real diplomat? International used, relations or what? It, it used to be that you, you did what, I, you did what I, I didn't become a diplomat, but I went to Dartmouth College. And if you were an Ivy League graduate or you were a graduate from one of the top 20 universities in the country and you wanted to go into the foreign service, as an undergrad, as, as, a, as, a, as a student who just graduated from college or university, you would take the Foreign Service exam, and if you passed it, um, you were accepted into the Foreign Service, and you, it was kind of on-the-job training. Today, there are several universities, especially in the Washington, D.C. area, that offer both undergraduate and graduate uh, courses in Foreign Service and diplomacy, and they actually do have some specialties in conflict and conflict relations, but the problem is that all they do is learn theory. None of those students actually learn how to mediate. Oh, my goodness. So even, yeah. even today, even today, we are churning out young people with 
undergraduate and graduate degrees in diplomacy and foreign service who, who may be specializing in conflict resolution but have absolutely no experience, even at community mediation level, on how to take people who are deeply opposed to each other, who hate each other, who do not want to be in the same room with each other, and who have, who have had their weapons, they would kill each other, yeah. and get them to sit down together and talk, which is what we do as mediators. That's it's, our job. It's amazing that they, don't, that they are not required to take these classes. You would think so, but no, it's not. It's not required at all. And not only that, but even if it was required, these are people in their 20s who are not going to be in a position to do any good in the world for another 20 or 30 years. Right. We have to look look at the people today who are doing the work. They're people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who are at the peak of their, their so-called careers, and they're being called in to mediate, and they don't have a clue what they're doing. They don't have a clue. With One country is changing. Yeah. Turkey, Turkey is changing. But other than Turkey, uh, other countries just are not investing in mediation at all. It's amazing. It, it, it is incredibly amazing. So how is it that you got so interested <clears throat> In international well, mediation, I, 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 as both a practitioner and a scholar of mediation, I'm always curious about everything. And I'm, I'm, I read a book about the uh, 2000 Camp David talks, and I was appalled at reading that book. I was absolutely appalled at how many rookie mistakes the Clinton administration made in in managing that mediation. Um, if you read the, the, the book, is called Camp David: The Untold Story by uh, Clayton Swisher. And if you read this book, which Swisher does a brilliant job of, of documenting, he interviewed everybody and just did a brilliant job of putting the story together. As as an experienced mediator, you would cringe oh. at the kinds of rookie mistakes that Clinton and Albright and Ross and, and Tony Lake and all these very bright, hardworking public servants made. And, and blew opportunity after opportunity to bring to bring the Israelis and the Palestinians together to a final deal. Mm. And, and I got I got that guy got me curious. I said, "Is it this bad everywhere? Are these mediators this inept in every situation?" So I started looking at a lot of the major peace conferences that occurred in the last twenty years, and I was looking for good examples of mediation. I didn't find one good example. I couldn't find one story to tell in my book of where there had been a, a good mediation conducted by an experienced, um, well-skilled mediator. Couldn't find one. Now, you know, I, I'm thinking, like, the Harvard Research Project on Negotiation and all the mediation that, that is there, and they also have international, you know, and foreign service at Harvard. I can't believe that the guys that have been around doing this for years, you know, like Bill Urey and like so many of the others there, have not... And I know that they've mediated. I know that Bill, when he was on my show, talked about a mediation in Iraq. But I, I can't believe that they are not suggesting kind of this crossing over and, and kind of having this multidisciplinary approach for these people who want to be diplomats. See, you're a mediator. You ask, <laughs> you ask the same obvious question I do. I can't believe this. The fact of the matter is that they're completely ignorant about the science and art of mediation. And there's another problem, and that there's a certain level of arrogance. Uh, in the diplomatic community, there is a certain level of arrogance that they think they know everything, and that, that, that outsiders, even somebody as talented and as experienced as Bill Urey, can't come in and, and, and work with them because he's not a diplomat. 
And so th- there's this huge arrogance, and coupled with ignorance, is just a recipe for disaster. Mm. What was another thing that was really amazing to me is I said, well, the UN, I mean, the United Nations, surely they must have a mediation program. <laughs> if you go to the UN website, and I spent hours searching the UN website, it, ha- it has such a minimal, almost non-existent resources on mediation, you can't believe it. And if you wanted to find a UN mediator, you couldn't do it. There are, first of all, they don't have any, and second, they don't have any resources even if they did have some. Wow. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It, it is. For those of our audience who are listening who aren't familiar with the difference between mediation and arbitration, and we've talked about it a little bit on this show, but I think for those who are not really understanding, let's have you explain for them really what you mean by mediator versus arbitrator so that they get the difference if they haven't listened to our show before. Right. It's what I call the shuns. Mediation, meditation, arbitration, litigation. <laughs> so, all right, so they're, all, they're, all, they're all different, but we call them the shuns because you, you don't want to get the shuns confused. So litigation and arbitration are very simple. It's a way of resolving a conflict by turning the conflict over to a third party and having that third party make a binding decision for the parties in conflict and saying, this is how it's going to be. Yeah, and so it's when you imposing. Go on, when you go into arbitration or litigation, yeah. you are giving up all your power to resolve the conflict, and you're putting it in the hands of a third party, judge, oh. jury, or arbitrator. Right. In mediation, you take all the power to resolve the conflict, and you step into the power circle with your adversaries. The mediator is outside the power circle. The mediator has no power to resolve the conflict. All the mediator is there to do is to manage the process, so that you can have a hard discussion, the hard conversation you need to have with your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your business partner, your coworker, the person who's suing you, whoever it might be, you can have that hard discussion in a structured way that allows for high productivity and de-escalation of emotions. Right. And, and the mediator, me, yeah, and the mediator facilitates those negotiations and and deflects the conflict so that you can actually problem solve instead of argue. Correct. And, and, and a lot of people, it's, uh, it's very funny. I've been doing this for a long time. When I talk about peacemaking and mediation to people who are not in conflict, they love the idea. But whenever you start talking to people who are in deep conflict, uh, if they're in a civil conflict, the first thing they want to do is go out and hire the meanest junkyard lawyer they can find. Exactly. And the idea of peacemaking goes completely out the door. And that's also true in international conflict. When there's a border dispute or a civil war, and you're fighting for your life and your ideology, land for peace goes out the window. What you want to do is annihilate the other side. Right, And right. so the idea at that point in time of having to sit across the table and talk to somebody whom you hate, whom you can't even acknowledge as human, and have a mediator helping you do that is something that is very, very difficult to do. Right, right. And that's the challenge. Let me just say also meditation. Meditation is what you do to resolve your inner conflicts. Exactly, and it and it helps you to get ready if you're the mediator, so that you're you centered. <laughs> you're you centered before so you, you get into the. Me- yourself a little yes, bit. yes, exactly. yes. So that you can put your golden shield around you, so that uh, you right. don't you don't uh, absorb that conflict. Because as the right. mediator, you have to be centered, and you have to be this center of peace, so that you can engender that to the others. That's, that's Must maintain a non-anxious presence at all times. Yeah, there are a lot of skills involved in mediation. I mean, yes. when I teach mediation, I'm teaching neuropsychology, I'm teaching sociology, we're teaching anthropology, we're teaching cultural anthropology, social psychology, group dynamics, conflict dynamics. I mean, the science is intense. 
Yes, you, yeah, you have to wear a lot uh, of hats. Most have... mediators, a lot of mediators, don't even have that science down. But but the highly skilled mediators get themselves educated in, in as you mentioned before, this multidisciplinary arena. Yeah, you have to wear a lot of hats to be a mediator. <laughs> you, you really, do. you really have you to do. wear a lot of hats and 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 be there to be a really good listener as well. So there's there's a lot of things. You know, I want to get back to when you were talking about the international. Uh, types of conflict and how it's so difficult. What about the emotional and irrational issues that are, that arise that, that make diplomacy so hard? What about okay. those? Well, what we know from, from uh, neuroscience and neurosocial psychology and neuropsychology is that our whole conception of what human nature is, is wrong. Uh, the Western philosophy is based on a sort of a rationalist, empiricist viewpoint that human beings are rational beings. And the truth of the matter is we're not. We're 98% emotional and 2% rational. Yes. And, and everything we do is imbued with emotion. Sometimes the emotion is low level. Sometimes it's at a very high level. It's, it's, it's excited or it's, it's um, highly stimulated. But emotion colors everything that we do. And in conflict, uh, as I think anybody can recognize if you've been in a conflict recently, it's a highly emotional experience. Yes. A lot of studies have shown, imaging studies have shown, that when our human brains get highly emotional, the prefrontal cortex shuts down. That's the thinking part of our brain. So when we're, we can be, we're either one or the other in high states of conflict. And, and in high states of conflict, when there's high emotion, we cannot be rational. It is impossible to be rational. And there's just study after study after study that's shown this. So one of the things that we have to do as a mediator is recognize that when we have people in the room who are highly emotional, they're not being irrational. They're just being emotional. And their emotionality is interfering with their ability to make good decisions about what they want to do. Right. So our job as a mediator is to de-escalate those emotions, to try to inhibit the emotions to the degree that the prefrontal cortex can kick back on, and they can start thinking again and start applying a little bit of logic to what they're seeing in front of them and, and trying to overcome their cognitive biases and try to make the good decisions. Because all we try to do as mediators is help people make difficult decisions in the face of great uncertainty. That's really what our job is. Right, right. And, you know, I try to tell people in, in mediation, you know, you are not angry. You have anger. You have angry feelings. You mm -hmm. are not a piece of anger. <laughs> right. So right. that means, exactly. you know, so because you are, you know, you have angry feelings about this, and those are totally legitimate, absolutely legitimate, but are you going to let your anger rule you, or are you going to be in charge of your anger and use it to let you know that, yeah, there's a problem here and I need to change it. But now that I'm aware of it, I need to problem solve so that that anger can subside. And, the, and kinds of, the kinds of conflicts that I work in, you can, I would say that to somebody and they would be so angry they didn't even hear me. Yeah. Well, so then yeah. you have to go to a different level and work right. at a different level. Right. And, and right. they need to know that it's okay to be angry. I mean, that's of one course. of the things that we do as mediators is we need to let them know, you know, you have absolutely every right to be angry. Of course. And, yeah. and, and most of my clients, you know, they want to be empowered. So, you know, if you're an empowered person, you don't want anything to rule your, yourself, you know, your higher self, your intellectual self. So that's that's Absolutely. why they can really get into it and go, yeah, I, yeah, I am angry and I know I, it's legitimate. I I have these angry feelings, they're legitimate feelings. And now, okay, let's let's kind of uh 
subdue those to some extent so that we can start to do what I call solutioneering. And solutioneering right. is when you look for solutions. You know, right. if you're angry, you need a solution, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, um, we're, when we talk about mediation, and from your perspective, um, how does mediation in, internationally, how, how is that going to give us hope? What are we going to need to do for this to get real peace? Like whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere, you know, Somalia, wh- wherever there's, which is well, all over the world. How are we going to get that kind of mediation going? How are we going to get that going? The first thing, uh, that, that's a really excellent question. And I think that it's it, it, the first thing we have to, of course, acknowledge is that issues like Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, China, those are all wrapped in Iran. They're all wrapped together. Uh, are extraordinarily complex problems. Um, Iraq is an extraordinarily complex problem. Libya is now an extraordinarily complex problem. It's costing the U.S. taxpayers $100 million a month. Most people don't know that, but that's what it's costing us. Um, my, what I finally conclude is that what we really need to do is build up a cadre of international mediators, of both men and women who are culturally appropriate, highly educated, highly experienced, and highly trained. And in the next five to ten years, find these people around the world, train them, and turn them into rock stars. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they become sought after as peacemakers and mediators. And... Uh, there's hope for this. There's the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in, in Geneva, the Cairo Mediation Center, the Singapore Mediation Center. There's Patrir in, in Hungary. I mean, there are mediation centers starting to uh, emerge out of um, these different parts of the world where there is the possibility that we can start training people in their 40s and 50s who are in the middle of their professional careers to be actual mediators. And that's what it's going to take. Short of that, if we have conflicts today, what we really need are teams of mediators going in and, and, and having the, the, the support, the financial support, and the long-term staying power to work on some of these conflicts. The, the problem in international mediation is that everybody, first of all, a lot of people chase the Nobel. Do you know how many mediators have gone into Libya since February? How many? <laughs> about 15. 15 different groups have gone in to mediate. They last for a day and they're out. Mm. Uh, you know, because because they're not they have no staying power. They don't. They're not going. They're going in thinking I'm going to save the day and win a Nobel. I don't think that's really true. But I mean, tongue yeah. in cheek. Yeah. But there's no staying power. They don't realize how difficult it is. So we need to, and we need we need to build a support structure around this. And the second thing we need to do is we need to get the world, the, the diplomats, out of this work. Yeah. Um, they they can be at the negotiating table representing their various interests, but the, but diplomats don't have any business mediating cases. Mediators mm. mediate cases. And mediators ought to be independent of any particular nationality. Of course, they'll come from a nation, but they really have to be sponsored by a regional organization or by the, by the United Nations so they can have some kind of neutrality and impartiality. Um, so I would pick, a, pick an area like Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, and India. But of course, the key there is uh, India, India and Pakistan. It's not Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's the India problem that's got to be solved. Right, so we need... Right. Some, Indi- some Indian people and some Punjab and some Pakistani people and maybe some people out of Kashmir who are mediators to come in and start working on this problem. You know, I was it. thinking like for the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, it would be so nice if we could have a Palestinian-Israeli who were really a, a team mediation 
You know what I mean? Where they would go in, two of them, and that they were really so in tune that they could actually team mediate so that, you know, that that would be really... That leads to the next problem, and that is that peace always comes in its own time. And if we look at the Israeli-Palestinian problem, the problem that exists in Israel right now is there is no peace leader. Netanyahu is not a leader of peace. He's a war leader. And he has absolutely no interest in making peace with the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, and, and, of course, the Palestinians have their own problems. So you could have the best mediators in the world working on that problem. But until you can change the heart and mind of, of Benjamin Netanyahu and his conservative uh, supporters, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. The leaders really have to support. It has to come from the top down. So that, they ha- people yeah. have, to want, they have to want peace. They can have no hope that it's possible, but they have to want it. And right. right now, the Israeli government doesn't want it, which is why we have this no peace. Right. Because, because there are plenty of opportunities out there. Uh, you know, we saw from the WikiLeaks that the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, had made some amazing concessions to get peace, and he was just rejected out of hand by, by mm. Netanyahu. He doesn't mm. want peace. It's, yeah. it's his political base. Yeah. You know, once, once he makes peace, what does he have to talk about? The Israeli right. economy? Right. Well, don't they need to really, sit, the mediators need to sit down with with the leaders first, don't of they? they do. I mean, you know what I mean? To sit down with the leaders. And, you know, I believe, and maybe this is just from being a mediator for so many years, that, that there is always a way. There's always a way to get right. people to agree or at least to come to some kind of agreement and get to some understanding and, and, and really kind of get over that hump of that anger and that resentment and really get to know each other as human beings. So it just seems it, to me if it's absolutely could, correct. Yeah. And not not only that, but even in the darkest moments when you think, Oh, this whole thing is collapsing around you, if yeah. you just have patience, it's amazing how it turns around. I'm I'm working with a, a family that I love these family people dearly. They're in deep conflict. And just this morning, one of the family members sent a an email apology to all the other family members. Mm. Complete abject apology, apology saying I feel broken, and we're broken, and I apologize for everything. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. When I yeah. thought, I don't know what's going to happen here. So you just never know what's going to happen. And so as a mediator, you just have to be patient, hold compassion in your heart, and be present for people and let them go through their process. And, and set that environment of peace. Set that Absolutely. environment of mutual respect and mutual Absolutely. caring. And when you do that, you know, and I'm sure that you did that with this this family, so that by you having that kind of a presence, you really brought out the best in these family members for, the, for that person to apologize. Well, you, you're right. You try to set things up, but you can't control outcomes. That's the other thing about being a mediator is you can't, you can't force people to peace. All you can do is set the circumstances up. And if people want peace, and I believe that almost everybody wants peace, then it, it will eventually flow. And all you can, as you say, all you, you, what you do is set up the circumstances, the environment, so the peace can happen. Right, right. Well, you know, we I can't believe this. We're almost out of time. We got through hardly anything that I wanted to talk about. So and what? Well, let me just ask you this one question, if you could just kind of answer it quickly. What will the readers take away when they read this wonderful book? What do you want them to take away from it? I came away with some real, some good hope and some great ideas. What do you want the, the reader to come away with after they finish sure. Elusive Peace? Three things. One, I want them to have hope that there, it is possible to have world peace. Two, that 
when they read the headlines, they'll understand exactly what's going on uh, because they'll now understand the dynamics of the conflicts. And three, I want people to realize that even though we're talking about international conflicts, uh, it's the same is true in your family. And we, the same dynamics that occur at the international level occur at the family level, between neighbors, between family members, coworkers. And so the things that I talk about in a lucid piece are just as applicable to any human interaction where there's conflict. Yes, Take absolutely. Things, three things away from the book. Yes, it's wonderful. And why don't you give your website and your website for your radio show, too? Sure. The book website is elusivepeace.com, elusivepeace.com. The radio show website is thedugnollshow.com, probably the easiest way to find me, thedugnollshow.com. And Google me, Doug Noll, N-O-L-L, and you'll find more about me than you would ever care to know. Well, Doug, it was just wonderful, and we'll have to have you back again and talk more about this and, and maybe your next book, too. So thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to meet you soon. Thank you, Mari. Okay. Have a great day. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm the host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Visit our website at conflicthealing.com and you can see our upcoming guests. You can look at their books that they've written, see their bios, go to their websites, and you can listen to archived interviews and write us about what's important to you or what you're worried about with concerning the conflict in your life. Thank you for joining us, and join us next Monday at 8.30 a.m. Thanks. It's about trust. Yeah, yeah. It's about faith. It's about trust. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.